Father, we do come here today to hear from you. Uh, we believe that you want to speak, and so God, we ask that you would do that. We pray that uh, you would give us really sharp minds and soft hearts as we approach your word this morning. Uh, would your spirit be present, and would you draw us not just to more information, uh, but to greater worship of you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Augustus Toplady was a man born in England in 17. 17- 40. Now, I suspect that most of us have no idea who I'm talking about when I say Augustus Toplady. So uh, let me tell you a little bit about him. So as I said, he, he was born in the 1700s, uh, living in England, and his dad was uh, a high-ranking official in the British Army, and his mom was a very devout religious woman. Now, unfortunately, when Augustus was just a few years old, his dad actually passed away. And so most of his life, he grew up uh, just him and his mom. Now, because of his mom's influence in his life, he, he said that he grew up a very good, uh, moral, religious young man. He would grow up in church week in and week out. Yet he would later say that as he was growing up, he, although he was in the church, although he looked probably like a Christian, he said he, he really wasn't a Christian. You see, what he thought, he said that Christianity was really about was simply going to church, being a good person, kind of living like his mom lived, and that was kind of enough. And uh, I don't know, even if I, as I say that, I think that's probably a, a pervasive thought even uh, here today, right? Maybe some of you, that was your story. That's kind of what you used to think. That was mine. I grew up in the church thinking that as long as I went to church, I was probably a Christian. Uh, but Augustus realized one day that that's not really what it was. You see, even though he grew up week in and week out going to church, He found himself as a young man wandering into a barn in Ireland uh, to a Methodist service that was taking place. And he he says that he he wandered in and there was this man, this illiterate Irish man, who was just a member of the church who got up and he began to preach. And he preached on Ephesians 2, verse 13, which says this, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And Augustus writes that it was in that moment, as he listened to an illiterate Irishman fumble his way through a sermon, that the Lord saved him. He he writes this, he says, Strange that I should be brought near to God in an obscure part of Ireland, amidst a handful of God's people in a barn, under the ministry of one who could hardly spell his name. Surely this is the Lord's doing, And it is marvelous. You see, Augustus that day uh, had a heart-transforming moment. He says that he went from a man who was dependent on himself, dependent on his works, his church attendance, to being a man who was wholly dependent on God. He said, I went from being dependent in self-righteousness to dependent on Christ's righteousness. Now, Augustus, if you have ever heard of him, it is probably because he penned a famous hymn called Rock of Ages. And he wrote this hymn that has lines like, Rock of Ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. And I love this hymn, and I love that it's written by this guy with this story, because if you know the song, it is just rich 
with lyrics of dependence on God, of having nothing to offer God, of being lowly before God, but having everything in Christ. It was a truth that day in Ireland that Augustus grabbed hold to. That the kingdom of God, following God, being a Christian, was not for the put together and the mighty, but for the humble and the lowly. It was not for those who were dependent on themselves, but those who were dependent on God. I think what Augustus realized that evening was that followers of Jesus are dependent on Jesus. I mean, if you boil Christianity down, I think one of the ways you could say it is simply followers of Jesus or uh, Christians or people in the kingdom of God are dependent on Jesus. That's the, that's the marker that marks us all is simply that we are dependent. It's a truth that Augustus believed. It's a truth that I think Jesus is teaching his disciples in Mark 10. And I think it's a truth for us this morning. Because whether you're a, a Christian in the room... I know from personal experience how easy it is to drift from, yeah, I was saved by grace, but now it's kind of up to me to to stay in line. Or maybe you're not a Christian yet in the room. Maybe you've walked in here like Augustus walked into that barn, just trusting that you might be good enough, that you might have enough things put together, that God just might be nice enough if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds. And I think that Jesus wants to say this morning that it's not about being good enough, it's about depending on him. So if you have a Bible, go Mark chapter 10. We're going to be in Mark chapter 10. We're going to start in verse 13. Now, how I want to do it this morning, if you're a regular here, usually what we like to do is have you know three nice points put together. If it's a good week, they might even alliterate a little bit and and. That's how we do it. But today, since we got this short little story, uh, I want to just simply walk us through the story verse by verse. There's only a few verses. And so I just want to highlight the narrative as it comes to us. And I want us to see that being a follower of Jesus means that you're dependent on Jesus. So if you've got a Bible, turn to Mark 10. Let's just look at the first verse, starting in uh, verse 13. We'll see, run one verse. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. Okay, so in Mark 10, what we're seeing is Jesus is on this journey to Jerusalem. Okay, so in Mark 9 and 10, we get to see his kind of journey with his disciples, and they're headed to Jerusalem, which they get to in chapter 11. Now, Once they get into Jerusalem, it sets off a series of events that will eventually lead to the cross. So this is kind of his final moments with his disciples. And and as you read Mark 9 and 10, it's just over and over again, he's talking about what it means to be in the kingdom of God. What it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus. How you are to follow Jesus. What it looks like to be a Christian. And in the midst of that, we get verse 13. Now, uh, maybe some of you, you've heard this story a lot if you've grown up in church, and so it might not be that odd, but if you read it with kind of fresh eyes, I think it seems a little bit foreign, because there's not too many times when we would have a baby and immediately think, I have to go to a religious leader and have them hold him and bless them, 
right? Like I don't get too many requests like that for people to say, here, will you bless my child? Right? I mean, we have kind of baby dedication, which is maybe similar, but it's actually fairly different. So we just, we don't really have anything like this. But for Jews, this custom uh, was, uh, it happened often. So what would happen is either a parent or an older sibling would take a, a young child, maybe a baby, and they would bring them to the synagogue, the religious place, and they would ask for a rabbi or somebody to bless them. And how it would go is that the blessing would be something along the lines of this. God, would you make this child famous in the law, faithful in marriage, and abundant in good works? It was a simple blessing that they would pray over these children. Famous in the law, faithful in marriage, abundant in good works. So most people think this is probably what's happening here. Jesus is a famous religious figure in this area. The most popular religious guy in the area. And so what's probably happening is people are trying to bring their babies to him to receive this blessing. But to be honest, as we read this, I can speculate some of these things, but the reality is we really don't quite know. Right? As you read that verse, you could ask, well, who is they? I mean, who's bringing these babies? Are they babies or are they children? Why in the world are they bringing them to Jesus? There's all these questions that if you've read through Mark, you know is just kind of classic Mark. As you read through the stories, they're always just a little bit vague. There's always a few questions that you're just like, I, I don't fully get what's going on here. And this is not uh, because he's forgetful or just not a very good writer, but it's actually a, it's a literary technique that he uses. And this is something that we even have in our day too. So uh, think about um, in, uh, if you're watching a movie or a TV show, have you, you know the, the times when the camera will kind of pan in to one main character, one part of the scene, and they'll really focus in there, and everything else around it gets a little bit blurry, you know what I mean? And so it's, you know what the surrounding things are. You can see the people or the place or the objects, but it's very clear that they're drawing your eyes to the main character. The other things are a little blurry and vague. They set the context up, but they want you to focus in on the main character. Now, that's simply what Mark does. Throughout his entire gospel, he leaves these things vague. He says they are bringing children for a blessing. Well, we don't have any idea what some of that stuff means, but he's setting up a context to highlight Jesus. What Jesus is about to do is Mark's main theme. And so from this verse, I think what Mark wants us to know is simply this, that people were bringing their children to Jesus and the disciples were ticked, right? They rebuke them. They, they come at these parents or older siblings and they say, Jesus doesn't have time. Now, before we move to verse 14, I do think there's one question that would be fair to ask and kind of dive into, which is simply, why did the disciples get so upset? Right? I mean, it seems kind of harmless to spend a little bit of time holding some babies and pronouncing some sort of blessing. But again, I think this is odd a little bit because of some cultural differences. Right? So think about if, um, if I were to bring my three-month-old baby boy up here, 
I would probably get a lot of oohs and ahs and everyone, I mean, everyone, it would be completely distracted. You'd be all sorts of distracted. You would not be thinking about me. You'd say, okay, the baby's up there. You focus in, right? You think, oh, he's so cute because he is. And uh, I mean, it would just be, you'd be mesmerized by his chubby cheeks and odd facial expressions. Like we just, we love that. If there's a baby around, you just kind of get fixated. Now you would most likely not be offended, right? If I had a child here, you probably would not get upset because we love children. We value children in our culture, right? We say, you know, politicians go around shaking hands and what? Kissing babies, right? I mean, this is kind of a virtue that that's like, oh, okay, he's like a human then, right? Because he's shaking hands and kissing babies. We really highly value children. But this was not so much the case in Jesus's day. Now, they weren't cruel to children or anything, but children were just kind of seen as almost just a nuisance, right? Like they, they were kind of waiting until the children grew up to help, right? So they would help on the farm. They would help around the house. Whatever that they, the parents did, they would kind of wait until the boys and girls were old enough to kind of be of service. Until that point, they were almost like a necessary evil. Like you just kind of raise them then so that they can help out later. So when you have a person as popular as Jesus, as famous as Jesus... I think the disciples are simply saying, look, he doesn't have time for the people that are kind of a nuisance, right? They're, they're not quite powerful enough. Like we want Jesus, you know, heading off with the, the Pharisees and the, the religious leaders and some of the, the wealthy people. Like we want him to interact with them. The, the children, go get like somebody who's less famous to deal with the nuisances, Right? Like, get somebody else. These children aren't quite helpful enough. They aren't valuable enough. They're a little bit more of a nuisance than anything that Jesus wants to deal with. And I wonder if someone maybe comes to mind in your life that maybe you've had the thought, I don't know if they have enough yet to get to Jesus. Right? Have you ever stood in the place of the disciples and said, man, I, I don't want to even bother praying for this person. It's just a waste of time. I don't want to invest in this person anymore. They just suck life and they're never going to come to Jesus. I don't want to share the gospel with that person. They're way too far into their sin. They could never actually get to Jesus. Someone that maybe just isn't quite enough in some sense of the word for Jesus. So you're just kind of like the disciples doing Jesus a favor by kind of guarding him from then. I also wonder maybe that person in your life who you feel like isn't enough for Jesus just might be you. You ever had that thought, maybe I'm just not quite the right person for this. Maybe you think it's my job up here to kind of guard you and say, hey, why don't you go back out, clean up your act a little bit, come back in, and we'll see if you're ready for Jesus You see, what we're doing in those times is we're saying that there's certain people that don't really deserve, can't really earn, and just really aren't welcome in the kingdom of God. Because for the disciples, and oftentimes us, we functionally believe that the kingdom of God, that following Jesus, is really for the put together and the strong. So in the midst of that, how does Jesus respond? Look at verse 14. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. 
So Jesus is watching this scene unfold, and it says that he gets indignant. Now, there's only a few times in Jesus' life that we see Jesus get really mad, like very, very upset. Only a few times, and this is one of them. What the disciples are doing in this scene is enraging to Jesus. And what I think is interesting is that as, as humans, right, even all of us, what often incites us to anger, what often makes us snap the quickest, really reveals what you love the most. Doesn't it? Like the things that when they get attacked that you just snap are often the things that your heart kind of cherishes most deeply. You know, for me, this might look like if, if you were to come and you were to kind of attack my wife. Now, I know that none of you could actually find anything wrong with her to attack, but let's say you're just malicious and you say, I'm going to make up a lie and I'm going to attack her character. That's going to just incite some like anger in me. I'm going to get defensive. I'm going to get protective. What I'm not going to do is just kind of sit back and think, okay, are they right about this? Like, maybe I should come to her defense. I don't, it's, yeah, I probably should. Okay, I'm mad now, right? Like, I don't do that. It just, like, happens. My heart just kind of gets angry and defensive and protective. Because what's closest to your heart often will just naturally incite anger. Or um, if you were to, if you were to, that, that's probably a good example, um, but we often have bad ones, right? So if you were to come up to me after the service here, and you were to look at me and you were to say, man, you were really bad today. Like, that, that, that was just not, did you read the text? Like, it was not only wrong, but it was boring. Like, I literally can't imagine I sat here for 35 minutes listening to you. It, not only would you just crush my soul in that moment, but I would also get quite defensive and angry, right? Because I put time into this. I love this. I think that this is valuable. It's what my heart beats for. And if you attack that, I'm going to get angry. I'm going to get defensive. I'm going to snap pretty quickly. Right? We do this with hobbies or sports teams or political parties or books or the way we dress or whatever else. But whatever your heart clings to most tightly is often what will incite us to anger most quickly. So the question then is, what is it exactly that is so near to the heart of Jesus that makes him snap indignantly? It says, well, at at first glance, you might just assume, well, it's because he loves children, right? The children are being neglected. He loves children. And so he just snaps. And to some extent, I, I do think that's fairly correct. I think that's right. I mean, I think the truth that we see here is that Jesus is showing his heart of compassion and love for even the littlest of people. He's got a soft and tender heart for children. But I do think there's a little bit more here. You know, I don't think it's just simply that, you know, he loves children and adults are, eh, you know, kind of okay or whatever. But children, I mean, he just loves children. I think there's a little bit more. I think what Jesus is doing and what Mark is writing is that he's using children as an illustration of the type of people that Jesus came for. It's not just specifically children, but it's the type of people that Jesus came for. He says in verse 14 about children, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. So does this mean if you're an adult, 
Like, sorry, (laughs) you know, there's no kingdom for you because you're an adult. I don't think so. I think what Jesus is saying is that it is those like children that belong in the kingdom. I think what's inciting Jesus to anger is that the disciples here still do not understand. They don't understand the kingdom if they believe that Jesus doesn't have time for children. I think that's what is getting him so angry here. Remember our uh, illustration of the blurry context. I don't think it's primarily about children. I think the children are an illustrative context that is helping shine light on the type of people that Jesus has a heart for. And I think we see that he cares deeply for those who, like children, are dependent, who are helpless, who need something outside of themselves for life. I think what we're seeing is that Jesus is saying the kingdom of God isn't for the strong and the mighty and the wealthy and the powerful. He says it's for the humble. It's for the lowly. It's for the, those who are dependent on someone else. Followers of Jesus are dependent. But he goes on just a little bit further in the next two verses. Let's read 15 and 16. He goes on to say, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. So Jesus just kind of proves the point by saying, look, if you do not receive the kingdom like a child, you do not receive the kingdom. If you don't come to me like a child, you cannot come to me at all. If you don't base your relationship with God like a child bases the relationship with a parent, then you cannot have a relationship with God at all. So the final question then for us this morning, I think the pressing one would be, well, how do you receive the kingdom like a child, right? If it's this important that Jesus is saying, you either do this or you can't do it at all, then the question should be, how Does one receive that? How is the kingdom for the lowly and the dependent? Which I think was one of the things that this week as I was working through this text, one of the main things that just struck me. You know, I'm thinking about the kingdom of God, right? Like the big, eternal, glorious, everlasting kingdom of the almighty God. How is that kingdom for the most lowly and the most dependent people? How does the most powerful king only care about the lowliest of people? Well, I think it's only possible because, what a, because of what is about to come in a few chapters in the Gospel of Mark. You see, what the disciples still do not understand, Jesus has in mind when he's saying this. You know, Jesus knew that his time was coming. It's getting close at this point in Mark chapter 10. When the the king of kings, Jesus, would exchange his glorious cat crown of the everlasting kingdom for a crown of thorns. Right? When, When the son of God, who from eternity past had this perfect unity with the father, would hang on a tree isolated and abandoned. When the only perfect man to actually walk this earth 
would be charged with a guilty, or would be charged guilty with a ridiculous trial. When the one who actually created all things was subject to his creation and allowed them to beat him and to eventually kill him. He has in mind when the glorious king would be stripped of his glory and hang on a cross. You see, I think the only way for lowly, sinful, dependent people like you and I to enter the kingdom of God was going to be through the king of that kingdom taking our place. The only way that we could actually inherit and receive the kingdom of God would be for the king to become more lowly and dependent than even us. You know, Jesus had to take that cross. He had to die that death, being fully stripped of all glory and honor and exaltation so that once he rose again from the dead, he could actually take you with him. See, he had to go lowly and dependent so that all the lowly and dependent could enter in to his kingdom. It's how the powerful kingdom is for the lowly and dependent. And it's why all followers of Jesus, all Christians, all people in the kingdom of God are fully dependent on Jesus. There is nothing that you have done, nothing that you can do that will earn you citizenship in the almighty kingdom. We are too sinful, we are too broken, and we have not lived up, but praise be to God that he sent his son to take our place so that we could be exalted to his place. That this is what Jesus is trying to say, that you either come to me like a child, fully dependent that I can give you life, that I can sustain life, or you cannot come to me at all. That if you believe that you will make it to the kingdom through your good works, you cannot come to me at all. But he says, if you trust and depend on me, if you walk in me, the kingdom is for you. Then and only then are we fit for his kingdom. And so I want to end by first just saying and inviting I told the story of Augustus Toplady before. He walked into a room where an illiterate, stumbling preacher babbled on about the scriptures that told him the only way you come near to God is through the blood of Christ. And I want to invite you similarly, maybe you walked in here depending on yourself, believing in yourself, thinking that your good works might just be enough. And I want to ask you, through the bumbling and stumbling of an illiterate man, that you might see in the scriptures that it is not your works, but it is the power of the grace of God that you can come to the kingdom. That you can follow Jesus because he is the only way. Because entering the kingdom is only through dependence. And if that's you this morning, I, I, I just want to encourage you, do not let the moment drift. Do not let the time kind of pass. Do not think, well, I might need to mull this over. If the Spirit of God is doing something in your heart this morning, I would ask, would today be the day that you fully surrender, give up your resumes and your good deeds, and would you just fall at the feet of Jesus? Would you say, I'm a Christian solely by the grace of God. I've been brought near solely by the blood of Christ. I have inherited the kingdom of God because the king bought that for me. Would you do that this morning?
And, and one more thing, let me be clear for if, if you've already believed that message, if, if you are a Christian, if that is you, you know, there's, um, there's oftentimes this kind of, I think, misapplication of this text where people will say, look, you don't need to study God. You don't need to know more theology. You don't need to grow in your understanding because childlike faith, right? Just be kind of naive and just kind of, you know, just experience God. But I want to press in that the aspect of childlike faith that is commended here is not naivety, it's not ignorance, it's not being shallow, it is simply dependence. This is not a proof text to say we don't need to know God more because we just need to be like a child. No, the reality is as you learn more about God, you actually grow more dependent. So you become more like a child in your father's arms when you know the father even greater. It's why we press that we need to be people of the word. We need to know our Bibles. We need to hear from God. We need to know him deeply because the more you do that, the more dependent you will become. So Providence, I would encourage us to be a people who know God deeply. Who like a child, we just recognize day in and day out that we are more and more dependent than we ever thought before. So let me end with uh, just a couple lines that I love from Augustus Toplady's hymn, Rock of Ages. Here's just a few that I think just press this point. He says, It's not the labor of my hands that can fulfill your law's demands. He says, All for sin I could not atone, you must save And you alone. And maybe my favorite one comes in verse 3. He says, Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Would that be us this morning? Would we be a people that say we have nothing to offer or to earn the kingdom? We just simply cling to the cross. Let me pray. Father, you are so good that you would welcome and that you would bring the kingdom for the lowly, for the dependent, for those like a child who fully just trust in you. God, I pray now in this moment that you would help um, all of us, whether it be maybe for the very first time, lifting the, the veil from our eyes and seeing our great need for you. Or maybe it'd be for the rest of us who have believed that message long ago but need to continually remember our dependence on you, that we would be here as children, as children of God who are dependent on you for all that we have. And God, would we praise you now? Would we praise you because you did send your son. The king of kings took the lowliest of place so that the lowliest of people could be co-heirs with him in the kingdom. God, we bless you for this. We praise you for this. Would you drill that truth deep in our hearts? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.